Hello and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, welcome everyone. Dr. Dickon Weatherby here from Optimal DX. Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. Joined as always by Beth Allen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. Hey, Beth, how's it going? Hello. Hi, great. Thank you. Well, we are super excited to have our guest today, Kathy Swift. If you don't know Kathy, she's a powerhouse in the world of nutrition and dietetics with a robust background in science, research, integrated practices. Spent her career working passionately to promote the power of personalized nutrition for optimal health and wellness. She's known for her unique approach that merges a conventional nutrition with integrative and functional medicine practices, making her a pioneer in the field. She got a master's degree in nutrition from Arizona State University. She's a registered dietitian, licensed dietitian, nutritionist, fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She's pioneered leading functional uh, nutrition programs at Dr. Mark Hyman's Ultra Wellness Center, the Canyon Ranch Health Resorts and Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. She's been the Nutrition Education Director for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's highly acclaimed Food as Medicine Professional Training Program for over 20 years. And in this podcast, we're super excited to be diving deep into the topic of sarcopenia. So let's get started. Welcome, Kathy, to Optimal, the podcast. So what sparked your interest in sarcopenia and muscle health? Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be here with you both today. And yeah, what sparked my interest? Well, when I think about it, it goes way back. Actually, when I was a nursing student, this was decades ago. And way back then, one of my responsibilities on the evening shift was to provide, give patients a bed bath and do a massage to help them relax and prepare for a good night's sleep. And what I observed back then was that in my elderly patients, really, I was massaging this very loose, flaccid, bony skin. So it really started with that observation, like where did the muscle go? And then years later, my mom was battling ALS. I was her caregiver. And of course, I witnessed a swift decline in her muscle mass. And previously, she'd been a very active individual, good body build, competitive golfer, et cetera. And as the disease progressed, of course, that changed. And then For me, personally, years ago, I battled, I'm going to call it the beast of Lyme disease. And I had some significant neurological and cardiovascular complications, which limited my own physical activity for many months. And I, too, observed a loss of muscle strength, whereas previously I'd been very, very active. So... I began digging deeper into the literature on muscle health and have made it a priority in my own clinical practice. And just out of curiosity, I did a search at the clinic that I work at, a functional medicine clinic, and we have a very large patient database. It's 
many thousands of patients. So I went into the electronic health record and I searched for the diagnosis of sarcopenia. And guess how many patients had the diagnosis of sarcopenia? You want to take a guess? <laughs> well, I'm going to jump out and say no one, but it's not something that people were necessarily measuring. But um, did they recognize it? it yeah, did they recognize it? I guess that's my first first. Well, point, your question. You're you're very close. Out of many thousands, forty two patients, right. and twenty nine were female, thirteen were male, and they ranged in age from fifty eight to a hundred. And then, so again, out of curiosity, I thought, okay, I'm going to search osteoporosis. And as you can imagine, the data was much different. So I think that sarcopenia is just not on our clinical radar screen as much as it should be. And it's really a missing diagnosis. And when we think about muscle health, I really believe it is a critical vital mm -hmm. sign for mm -hmm. overall health and vitality. And functional, functional living as, as we age. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe, you know, obviously it's muscle health, right? So maybe you could give us like, what is the definition of sarcopenia? And then maybe look at some of the risk factors and some of the root causes. Okay, sure. Well, the word itself, sarcopenia, sarks meaning flesh and penia, loss of flesh, and it's the progressive decline in muscle mass and strength, and again, associated with morbidity and mortality. But some background is quite interesting on this diagnosis. It was actually first described in 1989 by Erwin Rosenberg as the natural phenomenon of loss of skeletal muscle mass with age. And then there was a period 2010 to 2014 where we had all these international study groups that they repositioned it as a disease mm -hmm. and oriented the definition to include muscle function. And then in 2016, it was officially a diagnosis in the ICD-10, and that's M62.84. <laughs> right, there you go, yeah. And then later, obviously, there's lots of continued working groups on sarcopenia, and they had clinical practice guidelines, and it encompasses decreased levels of, there's the muscle strength, the loss of that, the muscle quantity or quality, and the low physical performance. And so the prevalence data in looking at this is, it's very high. The worldwide prevalence is up there at about 1.2 billion and expected to climb dramatically. And as far as the risk factor, as I mentioned, age, of course, it's been said, I guess, that our physical function starts declining, yikes, in our third decade, but oh. then steeper decrease in those of us who are over 50. Interesting, as far as gender, it's kind of a gray area. Some of the research I looked at, it shows a higher prevalence in men, whereas other women, so it's kind of a who knows. Genetics. Certainly, various genes are involved in both muscle mass and physical function. And just this morning, I actually got an email from a nutrigenetic company. And interestingly, I saw that they're going to be adding a number of SNPs related to muscle. I haven't had a chance to read it thoroughly yet. But as far as the genetics, they've even called for a consortium on the genetics so that it can be explored further. So, more to learn there. 
Of course, there's lifestyle factors, smoking, excessive alcohol, and the revenge of the sit, as we say, the physical mm-hmm. activity or the mm-hmm. bed to sofa lifestyle, which is, of course, significant. Not surprisingly, malnutrition, both calorie and especially protein intake. And I think with that, we also want to be thinking in working with our patients about the psychosocial factors that can't be underestimated. The loneliness, depression, aloneness, lack of social networks at all impact the eating experience. And then, of course, endocrine, especially anabolic hormones, testosterone, DHEA. And there's some evolving research on the role of thyroid hormones. Mm -hmm. And then comorbidities. Of course, we've got obesity. And then there's the sarco-obesity, the twins of sarcopenia and Mm -hmm. obesity. We have osteoporosis and osteosarcopenia. And any condition, whether it's a GI, neurological, others where there's an inflammatory process, there's some fascinating research going on and looking at COVID-19 impact and sarcopenia. And yeah, so those are some of the major risk factors. And something I guess that wasn't foremost on my mind was how does early life history impact this? And it has been shown that low birth weight, and these are things we can't change, right? Age, but in early life history, low birth weight, has been shown to predict lower muscle mass and strength in adult life. On the plus side, breastfeeding, which is what I actually did my graduate research on, is it been associated with greater lean mass in later life? And of course, good childhood nutrition so Mm. that child can attain peak muscle mass. They're not trying to catch up, so to speak. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Kathy, if I might ask a quick question about this what they might have called natural loss of muscle mass with aging. But if someone kept up the same level of physical activity and their same protein intake and things stayed the same, do you think they'd still have increased muscle loss with age? That's a great, great question. And what we absolutely know for a fact, and I know we'll talk about diet, but is that there is a synergism of exercise and diet. Hmm? Exercise is really crucial. And so the partnership of optimizing nutrition with exercise, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about the exercise piece Mm -hmm. later, is I absolutely think, and it's been shown that this steep decline does not have to happen, fortunately. I wonder too about, and there's something I've been looking into fairly recently, is sort of the catabolic anabolic concepts within in the human physiology and obviously as we're a younger age we're probably more anabolic and then we sort of lose that anabolic reserve so to speak and then the catabolism starts to come in um, chronic inflammation what they call inflammaging oftentimes there is low calorie intake for some certain types of demographics key nutrient deficiencies gut dysfunction can't be overruled in this particular situation so do you see like a tendency or trend in our aging population towards more of a catabolic state where we are actually breaking down muscle tissue in order to free up available amino acids. Mm -hmm. And then obviously looking at the neuroendocrine cycle as well, the testosterone deficiencies, the DHEA deficiencies and things like that. Deficiencies is not the right word, but low output 
as we age. Just wondering if you've noticed that that plays a role as we're more catabolic as we as we're aging and what potentially we could do to reverse that. Yes, it absolutely plays a role. In fact, if we tend to, from a dietary nutritional perspective, get very protein centric and get yeah. protein tunnel vision. And one of the reasons it's been shown that as we age, we need more dietary protein because of anabolic resistance, which is this phenomenon where we require higher dose of protein to achieve that same response in muscle protein synthesis mm -hmm. versus younger adults. So one of the first studies that I think took a good hard look at all of this was back in 2013, the Protege study group. And what they looked at was the protein needs for people over 65. As we know, older people is defined differently in each study, but <laughs> generally speaking, so I'm in that category. And they looked at it in folks who are in good health. They looked at it in older individuals who had a chronic disease and even acute disease. They looked at the role of exercise along with dietary protein. I've already mentioned how critical this synergism is. They looked at specifics about the source of protein, the timing of protein intake, and they also looked at functional outcomes to assess the impact of muscle loss. And I'll just kind of summarize based on the literature I've reviewed what key findings of that study going way back and others uh, since that time up until now have found. You bet it's confirmed we do need more dietary protein. In fact, the minimum that's been suggested is 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight per day. And some experts even recommend higher as up to 1.5 gram per kilogram. For those of us who might be calculating protein based on a percentage of calories, that 1.5 is in the what's called the acceptable macronutrient dietary range of about 10 to 35%. If the individual has a disease process, then even more dietary protein, it can be as high as two grams per kilogram with severe illness or injury. I think a caveat, of course, that we have to think about is somebody with kidney disease, not on dialysis. The exception, of course, to high protein intake in there, we go back to about 0.8 gram per kilogram of body weight. So those are some of the protein studies as far as the amount, as far as the quality and the timing, and maybe you're familiar with this guideline, we're hearing that, okay, aim for around 30 grams of protein per meal, 25 to 30 grams because of that anabolic threshold we talked about. And then consider timing. And there's the thought that because there's more muscle protein catabolism, the breakdown overnight, that the morning meal is especially important. And when we think about that, I know for me, when I first started Digging into this, that's an aha for me because many people, we tend to have protein at dinner. A lot of Americans, that's when they really load the protein. And part of this anabolic story has to do with the branch chain amino acids, which are isoleucine and valine. But in particular, 
I think leucine has definitely been a lot of focus on that. And because it really does help decrease the catabolic state and stimulate muscle protein synthesis. It improves insulin response in muscle cells. And some of this has to do with, they believe, the mTOR action and, and with regard to that. As far as leucine, it is found very abundant in animal foods. So meat, fish, poultry, eggs, dairy, cheese, you know, whey protein is exceptionally high in leucine. But so then we get into what? The animal versus plant protein debate, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I came across a paper I found fascinating. It was by Ron Donnelly, I think it was, in Frontiers in Nutrition. And they published a table, the papers on leucine, because there's been so much emphasis on this champion amino acid, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they published a paper that outlined a table with breakfast, lunch, and dinners that, guess what, included 25 plus grams of protein at each meal with three grams of leucine, because that's been this kind of target amount that's believed to help with this anabolic state. I want to mention that for vegetarians, you bet you can find leucine in addition somebody's lacto-ovo, in addition to cheese and beans like azuki, black beans, seeds, squash seeds, peanuts, soybean foods, almonds, corn. So you can definitely get it. And the thing about the plant versus animal protein debate, and it's been significant, I will say. In fact, I came across a paper just published recently in JAMA, and it was about personal and planetary health. And we're all concerned, obviously, with the health of our planet. And it was the connection with dietary choices. And they did end up recommending adopting this lower meat dietary pattern for both health and sustainability. So what's interesting is the studies on plant versus animal protein, as far as sarcopenia, they had different findings. And many of the studies do support animal protein sources superior to a plant-based diet. And as we know, a plant-based diet is what is, it typically does include meat and other animal products. So plant-based and really more what we think about like a flexitarian. But yeah, so whereas other studies have shown on this animal versus plant, they've shown some conflicting results when it comes to sarcopenia. And again, interestingly, the major difference has to do, they believe, with this muscle protein synthesis and the branch chain amino acids. And one of the papers in particular that I thought did a pretty good job, and it was a recent paper, I think it was in 2022, was one by, on this whole topic of plant versus animal, was Matthew Ewey, E-W-Y, and it was entitled Plant-Based Diet. Is it as good as an animal-based diet when it comes to protein? So here's the pearls that I took from this and looking at a constellation of these papers on this topic. And the reason I really want to talk about this is many other, whether it's a podcast or webinar on this topic, 
really animal protein is stressed. But I think in consideration that more and more people are concerned with sustainable diets and with more plants, these are the principles to think about when it comes to sarcopenia. Overall, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and even with animal rights, I mean, if the animal is fed better, and if you eat the cheese and save the cow, so we can still keep making cheese, wouldn't that be an approach that might make everybody happy if the animals were fed better and treated better and you save the animal, but use the byproducts? Does that make sense? And would they get enough of the high quality protein? I think so. Yes, uh, absolutely. It certainly makes a lot of sense. But for some people, and one thing I do try to avoid in conversations with regard to diet is canonizing or demonizing any one approach. So back to what are the principles and thinking about animal versus plant as far as, you know, number one is total protein intake. It's really the main factor. And as far as vegans are concerned, they can close the gap to the anabolic response by getting more protein at the level of, it's been estimated, about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that would support muscle mass accrual and strength. So thinking about total protein, thinking about in the course of a day, getting a variety of different plant sources versus to some, a plant-based diet or plant diet could be loaded with ultra-processed foods and Mm -hmm. such. And then the third thing, besides the total protein intake, the variety, which is key, is that champion amino acid leucine, which I already mentioned, absolutely can be found in many vegetarian foods. And then another thing that's happening is that, and this has been posited as an option, is enriching plant proteins with specific amino acids like leucine and others. So in thinking about all this, what I ended up doing, I thought, you know what? AI to the rescue, right? So there's actually, I plugged in, all right, I want a vegan meal plan, 30 grams of protein, three grams of leucine. I did it at different calorie levels. I even plugged in other variables, gluten-free. And guess what? It was less than a minute. You would not believe I had these delicious sounding optimal protein vegan meal plans. So, but can I ask a quick question about plant-based protein powders versus say whey protein powder, especially that's been, you know, a high quality sports level. Yes. The plant-based protein, sometimes they had a lot more contaminants that were pulled up out of the ground and the whey protein didn't. So that might be a benefit too there for the whey. Wow, thank you for mentioning that. You know, Consumer Lab just did a review on protein powders, and I actually haven't had a chance to review it yet. So thanks for mentioning that, Beth. Yeah, as far as the protein powders, I think there's one nice thing is there's so many options to choose from. I mean, some of my patients love a pumpkin seed protein powder, others you know, might love the hemp seed protein powder, pea protein. I am a big fan of whey. So for folks who can tolerate whey, I think it is, pardon this, but the way to go. And (laughs) yeah, another goat whey is also becoming very, very popular too. So 
And the isolate but, too, sometimes the isolate form could be easier for people to tolerate than the concentrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of, in fact, a huge explosive growth, not just in protein powders, but protein products in the marketplace. And I actually have been using some of these. In fact, the other day on our IFN Academy listserv, somebody asked the group, and there's tons of people on the listserv, what are your favorite plant protein products? And you would not believe this list that came. I use a cardinal rule with regard to looking at new products in the marketplace. And of course, and I know you both get this, they have to pass the litmus test of ingredients. I never go to the numbers first. Don't go to the nutrition Mm -hmm. facts, go to the ingredients, and then you can look at the nutrition facts. But I I love this egg white wrap, using that. I mean, of course, there's so many new products that are expanding, but I'm also a big fan of giving patients recipes, whether it's to make their own protein bar, like a seed bar with multiple different seeds, make their own snacks like chickpea nuts and or Adam, and there's so many wonderful, delicious ways to get it. I think what's really arising, so to speak, is are these meat alternatives from that are made by microbial fermentation, um, the mycoproteins. So there's some interesting work going on there. And companies are coming out with both casein and whey protein made that is animal-free ice cream, and many, many other things. So kind of interesting. But I want to jump back and just mention too, I said in the beginning, we tend to get protein tunnel vision, and that's exactly what I did. But I just want to mention that there's some other great work that's being done on uh, specific other nutrients besides protein. And looking at micronutrients. And I will say as a synopsis, certainly these studies have confirmed from a macro a critical role for dietary protein, but very promising data on, of course, vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, minerals, I would say seleniums and magnesium from what I've read seem to be standouts. In fact, a serum selenium has been posited. It may be an appropriate marker for risk of muscle loss and sarcopenia, maybe something that we really haven't taken a good look at. Iron, zinc, calcium, and potassium also are mentioned in many of the papers as being very important, which leads me to what about studies on whole foods, right? And dietary patterns. So we've talked protein, we've talked specific nutrients. That's what nutritionists we like to do this nutrition speak, right? Macro, micro, phyto, anti-nutrients. But what about whole food? And we certainly honor their first place, of course. And dietary patterns, such as a anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, mm-hmm. certainly has mm-hmm. been examined. The med diet is one that's been best studied. And just this year, there was a review of the med diet and sarcopenia, and in general, not surprisingly, positive role in muscle mass and in function. But can I another, clarify, Kathy? So the, you yes. mean the Mediterranean diet? Yes. As we know, there's great variability, right, in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. population. Mm-hmm. 
and that's something the researchers point out. They want to look at that closer. But another study that really captured my attention was titled Mild Protective Whole Foods Muscle Health and Sarcopenia. It was by Antonetta Granick and others. And what they did is they did a systematic review of observational and intervention studies in the last 20 years. And so it was like 28 studies. They got it down to older adults. And this, they included folks who were 50 years and older, both male and female, all races, ethnicity, various settings, community, care homes, hospitals around the world. They defined whole foods, what they meant by that. That was nice, right? And it was whole foods. The only other thing, meaning, you know, meat, fish, poultry, eggs, fruits, vegetables, dairy foods, while yogurt and cheese were the two, and grains, legumes, nuts, seeds. And anyhow, what they did is they also did these functional tests, which when we talk about exercise, I'll mention some of those. Bottom line, there's a lot to digest. It's a very lengthy review, but Mm -hmm. I'm just going to cut to the chase. They found strong and consistent evidence for the benefits of lean red meat and non-liquid dairy. So Beth, you mentioned earlier about the cheese. Yes, yogurt and cheese. And then not surprisingly, if we think about dietary patterns and anti-inflammatory, a higher intake of both vegetables and fruits was associated with better muscle strength and function. So you know, yes, think protein holding first place, but also certain nutrients, micronutrients, and of course, whole foods of healthy whole food dietary pattern. Well, I always think of a puzzle, right? You can never see the whole puzzle until you put all the pieces together. So you can hold up that really important central piece, but you still need those other pieces put together so that you get the whole beautiful picture. And I think of our diet like that or nutritional. Yes, I absolutely, you know, love that. It really is a masterpiece. We want to think about this holistically. I was wondering if we might back up just a little bit. I love listening to two nutritionists talking about nutrition and stuff. It's fantastic. (laughs) You guys, you know, jumping to the conclusion. I'm always interested in how do we assess? (laughs) Because that's some diagnostic guy. But so I'm really curious. So Let's say this concept of sarcopenia for our listeners is a relatively new concept, and we can understand that as we age, we lose muscle. This is a progressive condition, correct? You don't suddenly wake up one morning at the age of 70 and have sarcopenia. Mm -hmm. It's a long-stage progression. So I'm presuming that there are potentially even stages of sarcopenia that we might be able to identify. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about the assessment side of it. Are there labs, you know, blood biomarkers, organic acid markers, or even functional nutrition type testing. I know that, you know, whether or not you can stand on one leg or balancing or grip strength and things like that. What are the sort of the assessment criteria that you would look at and maybe explain to some of our listeners about ways that we can look at our patient base and go, gosh, this person is at risk or developing sarcopenia. Let's intervene now. Let's start doing the work to not only make sure they're getting enough protein, but making sure that protein is digested and absorbed and utilized and taken up by the muscles. And the muscles have the right stimulus to grow and synthesize from all the available amino acids. Could you speak to the assessment side a little bit? Yes. 
Absolutely. And a couple things certainly come to mind. One, and I don't think we're doing this enough in practice, I think that integrating some simple, validated, reliable tools can be really, really helpful. Example, for assessing nutritional risk, there's this mini nutritional assessment. It's a six-question sensitive tool for assessing risk. You can just download it. Anthropometrics, of course, very, very important. And has there been an unintentional weight loss? Might we get a mid-upper arm circumference or a calf circumference if possible? Some patients might bring in body comp analysis. In our clinic, we actually are using a bioelectrical impedance And that's great. We're going to be also, and I'm thrilled about this, I brought it up and we're going to be doing hand grip strength as a part of all our initial assessments because that's been well validated. There's also a SARC-F screening tool. So some listeners might be interested in integrating that into their patient questionnaire. You can just download it and the SARC F means S for strength, A for assistance in walking, R rising from a chair, C climbing stairs, and F falls. And with regard to other assessment tests, before we get into the lab biomarkers, things that we could easily do and check. In fact, we might do this on ourselves. One is the five times sit to stand test. And it's been found to be very reliable and valid for, you know, determining lower limb muscle strength, balance control, fall risk, and and even exercise capacity. Basically, you just ask the patient to sit in a chair with their arms folded across their chest, and then they're going to stand up and sit down five times in a row as fast as they can do that safely. And you time them, and there's age bracket times, for example, 50 to 59-year-olds should do, be able to do it in around seven seconds. And then it increases 60 to 69 years is, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 seconds and such. Mm-hmm. So that's something we could all do on ourselves, which I think is important. Another functional test is the timed up and go test. Same thing, a patient is sitting in a chair and you have them walk a line that's 10 feet or three meters. So they stand up from the chair, they walk to the line, they turn around and they walk back. And they should be able to do that in less than or equal to 12 seconds. That's called the tug test. And you can download all of these tests. They're available, you know, just Google it. But we love our labs. We love our Mm -hmm. labs and biomarkers. (laughs) And of course, you know, tops (laughs) with regard to that. and But those types of things you're talking about, I think are so important because Mm -hmm. it engages the patient and is a very quick reference point to them. If they don't make it in that 12 seconds, you've now demonstrated to them in a very concrete way Mm -hmm. that there's something not quite right. And same with the sitting to standing tabs. And I think that those types of things are so important because a lab test is like, yeah, I'm sitting there getting this stuff sucked out of my arm and then it goes off to a lab and then it's just a whole load of numbers and it's all open to interpretation on some level from the patient's perspective. They have no idea what those numbers mean. When you're saying to them, listen, you should be able to get up, 
walk across, touch that line, and come back to here in 12 seconds. I don't want you to sprint. I just want you to do it. Right. And they can't do it. Now you've really reinforced to them, listen, the the results of that particular test are pointing to A, B, C, and D, and this is why we need to be instituting some therapy to address this condition. And plus, of course, the biomarkers are really important as well. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I love this. And even like the grip strength. Yes. Finding a way to be able to do that in your office. I mean, I just had my physical done and it was pathetic. I mean, I used to do a way better physical when I was in naturopathic school. It's like, it's amazing to me how our medical experience has just, especially post COVID, where, you know, we're only now just getting back into the office without masks on. And mm-hmm. it's, we have this sort of normal experience. So I tend to get on my soapboxes on my podcast. No, I love, I love, 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 especially, you know, with you being, you know, the master of labs and oh, biomarkers. Yeah. I love that. I'm so glad I brought those tests up. And yes, do you know, even in my own life, I am now periodically, you know, checking myself and how many seconds am I doing the chair test and the walk test. And another thing that comes to mind as you shared that is, you know, sometimes labs, going over lab data when a patient sees that something's flagged, there can be a lot of fear involved too. And when I review labs, I always try to start with all these, the good findings, all these beneficial findings and really, you know, strategize on the labs we want to optimize. But yes, actually, I'm thrilled that, again, the clinic that I work at, that we're going to be focusing much more on this and using those functional, very simple tests. And we don't have to be, I love my physical therapist colleagues. I refer to them all the time, but we don't have to be a physical therapist to do those very simple functional assessment test. Yeah. The basics. And, They've overlooked the basics a lot. Yes. Lately yes. with medical field. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as far as the labs and biomarkers, and you already mentioned, Dr. Weatherby, so many different factors, and you bet there's really been a call in the literature for a multi-marker approach, not surprisingly, because of, as you mentioned, the inflammation, aging, there's mitochondrial dysfunction, there's, you know, can be amino acid imbalances, oxidative stress. And of course, the gut microbiome, you know, changes with age, more dysbiosis, more, you know, leaky gut, all of this coming into play. I think I read that even the NIH like deplored that there isn't this single gold standard sarcopenia biomarker. And there was a paper, it was called Looking for Sarcopenia Biomarkers. And you know, they mentioned serum creatinine, which we know you know, mm-hmm. we've got to take into consideration different false positive and negatives around that. And you've got great information mm-hmm. on that. But one paper that caught my attention, well, it's a great paper. It was called a multifactorial approach for sarcopenia assessment. Mm-hmm. And it was by Rashmi Supriya and team. And basically what they looked at in this review was 50 different biochemical markers across six different pathways. So it really was a systems approach to sarcopenia. Very, very complex. Some of these biomarkers I wasn't familiar with. They also explored the genetics around this. But I think 
you know, extracting from that, you know, as you mentioned, we want to look at it, nutritional biomarkers, you know, what is the vitamin D, the omega-3, some mineral levels? What are the inflammation markers? I know we can barely get CRP unless we're, you know, working like I am in a functional clinic and we love, you know, our docs like love ordering even different inflammatory panels, thinking about the hormone levels oxidative stress markers. So let's say, for example, in a organic acid, we might be looking at 8-hydroxy deoxyguanosine. So all of these things, it has been shown as far as amino acid balance in the literature, lower plasma concentrations of, in particular, leucine and isoleucine in individuals with sarcopenia. And then another one that I've been looking at is an organic acid is 3-methylhistidine, which we also have to know, has this person been consuming a lot of meat? Because that can be increased excretion, could be either from, you know, it's influenced by meat or it can be a reflection of muscle, you know, protein breakdown. But yeah, a lot of research going on in this area. There's the biosphere studies. They're looking at all kinds of biomarkers. I came across Anna Pika's research. She's done quite a bit of research here, and she feels they've scaled it down to seven biomarkers mm-hmm. that basically include inflammatory markers, amino acid markers, and interestingly, the specific gut microbiota signatures. So I think we're going to see a lot more coming out with regard to that. Kathy, can I mention just quickly the sarcopenia index? I'm going to dig in a little bit more. We usually follow oh. up the podcast with a blog. So okay. I'm going to dig in deeper into the sarcopenia index because we have cystatin C in the software. And that's an okay. index that use serum creatinine and serum yes. cystatin C. And so I think that we could probably take a closer look at that and it should be easy to calculate. Oh, I love, I love, love that, Beth. And truly, I was thinking after delving into all of this and in the papers I mentioned, I would love for you know, you using that and others to really come up with what is, what do we think at this point in time? They say, you know, of course we need more and more research, but let's face it, based on what we know to date, mm-hmm. what would be our lab biomarker sarcopenia profile? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to leave that up to you guys. <laughs> well, yeah, we could join forces on that. Yes, I would, I would yeah, love that. It'd be great to do kind of a sarcopenia report. As you're talking about that, and I'm going to break from our just list of potential questions we got here. I'm just wondering how common is this? Because you talked about you know going through the database of the clinics that you're working at, and, mm-hmm. and as a, an actual ICD-9 diagnosed disease or condition, mm-hmm. it was very very low based upon the, the population base that you're looking at. Is it more common? And if so, what sort of age demographics are we looking at? And I guess what are some of the risk factors if it's not treated. And by that, I'm kind of looking at what age what age groups are we looking at as at risk? And if we don't treat it, what are some of the problems associated with it? I'm, I'm presuming the risk of falling and hip fractures probably goes way up when you've lost Absolutely. Muscle mass. Sense of balance yes. goes off. Any thoughts on those questions? Yes. The first one there is there's some decent prevalence data on 50 to 70-year-old, that group, and then certainly, you know, 70 to 80, 
there's been some very, very limited research on what they're referring to as the very old, but it can be as high as 20% in the 50 to 70, and it can be even as high as 50% in 80 year olds older. And really, the things that you mentioned, I mean, falling, risk of falls. And as we know, I don't want to quote the statistic because I can't remember it exactly, but it was a very high percentage of individuals who, when they break a hip, that how many do not recover, right? So increased mortality, other conditions, of course, that emerge from the disuse and such. And uh, yeah, so it's extremely, extremely serious, which is really why we want to be more muscle centric in our clinical evaluations. Mm-hmm. If I may mention too, I found a study, a lower, usually think of people at risk of diabetes, a higher creatinine, they, they go into renal failure, you have to watch them. But there was an article, a lower serum creatinine was associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. So those who had a level between 0.4 and 0.6, they had a much higher risk of having type 2 diabetes versus 0.71 to 0.8. And mm-hmm. of course, our ODX range is 0.8 to 1.1. So the lower end of creatinine, not only a risk for sarcopenia, possibly a sign of sarcopenia, but possibly a risk of type 2 diabetes or an association with type 2 diabetes. So yeah, this is a whole puzzle that we could all put together. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm conscious of the time where we've delved into proteins and whole food diets and plant and animal-based proteins. I'm wondering maybe for the last few minutes here, whether, Kathy, you could share your experience around supplements, definitely talk a little bit about exercise, we can kind of, or is there any other aspects of diet that you want to touch on? Because we've defined what it is, we've defined that it's affecting a very large amount of our aging population. It has major risk factors for morbidity and potentially even mortality, if it's not corrected properly. So now it's like, okay, we've identified what it is, how do we go about backing people away from it, increasing their muscle mass, functional muscle mass through diet, lifestyle, exercise, nutrition, and that kind of thing. So you guys are the experts on that. So I'm going to let you delve in. Yeah, well, I'll just touch upon supplements. And as we know, we certainly have to personalize what dietary supplements may be helpful for one versus another person. So personalization, obviously, is a given. But I'm just going to mention what I think of more or less, my swift picks on and where I'm thinking about supplementation. We talked about whey protein. That certainly is high on the list because it is a potent stimulator of muscle protein synthesis. The branch chain amino acids in particular, leucine, I actually myself have started using a supplement that does have, you know, the three branch chains in it. And creatine, and I actually use creatine even with my mom as I mentioned, who had ALS. And, you know, so that's another possibility. And there's different recommendations, you know, well, there's a lot of variation in studies on creatine. It ranges from a dose of one to 20 grams and all over the place. But even a dose of maybe about three grams a day can be well tolerated. I do always check the natural medicine database. I was surprised to learn that like, as far as you know, interactions. And I learned that levodopa, if somebody's on levodopa, that be cautious with 
leucine because there's an interaction that actually decreases its absorption. So a lot of things we have to think about, especially with regard to supplements. Couple others, certainly if the vitamin D level is, you know, tanked, we vitamin D, very, very important. And I mentioned the omega-3s. And then there's there's others on the horizon with regard to research. One is HMB, which is beta-hydroxy-beta-methylbutyrate. I know that's a mouthful. It's formed mm-hmm. from the breakdown of leucine. And some companies are actually putting that into like collagen or, you know, other lower quality proteins. Mm-hmm. So exercise, oh, I definitely want to touch on that. And, you know, it's so many benefits. And of course, we know general recommendations of cardiovascular and strength training. There was an article recently, it was on in Medscape. How old is too old to start strength training? Check it out. It's got a wonderful handout with options just even for our patients to start with. What are their activities of daily living? Climbing stairs. We mentioned standing up from the chair, the toilet, carrying groceries, gardening. If you don't have any equipment, using these activities of daily living, practicing the sit to stand. You can go to YouTube. And what I've done is gone to YouTube and asked for a video with a physical therapist to show me what like a proper squat and lunges. Mm-hmm. If you I'm in squats while you brush your teeth, I spend two minutes doing squats <laughs> while I brush my teeth. I do every night. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Doing wall push-ups. I get up from the computer. I try to time myself at 30 minutes instead of Again, this revenge of sitting too much. Equipment, there's exercise bands, free weights, machines. Machines are great, especially if there's balance issues. So even the American College of Sports Medicine in this article, they point out, yes, absolutely. Never too old, two to four times a week, three to 60 minutes. Start with one session, build yourself up. And, you know, certainly if you're just starting to meet with a qualified trainer, physical therapist, if limitations. I'll just tell you in my own life that I have an old favorite and I have a new favorite. My old favorite is Qigong. I'm certified in Qigong and which includes, of course, movement, meditation, breath work. We use our own body as resistance. And there was a great study, a review on Chinese medicine, including exercises like Qigong that had a very positive, important effect on individuals with sarcopenia. So I love Qigong. And my new favorite, I've got to tell you about, that is the E-Gym. So not all YMCAs have this, but it's a circuit of machines. And you get onboarded with a trainer and then you wear this band. And that machine, when I go, it says, hi, Kathy, and it will set my weight based on what? My strength test. And then every seven times that I go, I have to complete a new strength test on each machine. So it's using all your major muscles. And I'll just share with you, a year ago, my strength age was 68. And after a year, I improved to a strength age of 43. Now, I have no idea how they calculate that, But it's, you know, I'll take it, whatever. But I think the bottom line is move, be active, diversify, have fun with it. Enjoy, Mm -hmm. you know, a variety of muscle-centric activities. And I'll just conclude with, you know, just mentioning what I found 
on the horizon that I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see more clinics and practices with body composition analyzers. As I mentioned, our own clinic you know, has one. My YMCA has one. Check out muscle sound. This is an ultrasound imaging, and I have no commercial interest in any of these things, but it's an ultrasound imaging system that measures all different types of, you know, muscle parameters. So I think we're going to see hopefully more use of that in various clinics. We're definitely going to see, and they're already out there, more gadgets, sensors, and wearables that address sarcopenia. There's handheld gadgets that use near-infrared technology, that use electrical impedance myography. There's wearables that there's this bodysuit that uses electromuscle stimulation. So this is really cool example. A friend of mine, her mom broke a hip recently. And I mentioned this bodysuit because it certainly for, you know, someone who has an injury and, and disuse, it will help build muscle, whether we're working out or not. And I think we're going to see more of that in, you know, wearable sensors. But so I think at the very least, just to kind of wrap up, yes, let's do these functional tests. Let's integrate them into our practice. Let's get that very inexpensive hand grip, you know, let's include a body comp analysis and go over it as a part of our assessment. And I think, of course, we're certainly open to referring for those, you know, patients who really need a more help with their exercise program from like a physical therapist or other qualified practitioner. That's all part of the puzzle, right? All these pieces coming together. I know. It, we yes, it's a holistic care plan, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's not just diet. It's not just exercise. It's this beautiful synergism of how we live our life and all the different elements that make it whole. Yeah, and it's not just a great canister of whey protein either. No. <laughs> so much more. I've, I've got, you know. You got a chocolate and, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can see some of the stuff. I got, you know, one of my sons a professional athlete, and he, you know, oh. uses protein powder a lot. And you know, he talks about in the locker rooms how they just have these enormous, just like can you like milk old like yes. milk size of yes. protein powder. And I have a seven-year-old grandson who plays hockey, and he's already asking about you know protein and these things and but what what sport does your son play ice hockey <laughs> oh yeah he's wonderful a he's a professional ice hockey player so professional yeah That's awesome and mm. yeah i remember him when he was six starting to oh, skate and getting the bug yeah we had to <laughs> nice. export him up to canada to get him trained so <laughs> I, yes. I live in rural oregon here and there was very little hockey here so uh, anyway uh -huh. cool. well, it's a great sport. I mean, I love watching hockey. I think it's also really good for the kids to get yes. that type of skill and that cross hemispheric brain repatterning when they're skating like that is, I think, really, really important for brain development. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, very cool. Beautiful. Kathy, again, what a treat it is to have you here and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and Beth, you as well. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope our listeners have gleaned some very, very useful information that they can take into practices. If you're interested at all in what we're doing at Optimal DX, we pump out a lot of research-based articles on our blog. We also have a, just a regular blog called Optimal the Blog. We're doing podcasts. We have a software platform where we do 
analysis of blood working and providing updated reports. We have a very simple membership model. So come on over to Optimal DX. Um, Kathy, thank you again very, very much for your time and your expertise today. Any other parting words for our listeners? Well, I think move, stay active, <laughs> enjoy. And yes, let's collaborate on that sarcopenia. Yeah, <laughs> reporting. That would be profile. awesome. I'd love yeah. that. Beth, thanks so much for your time as well. For all of you out there, stay tuned for another episode of Lots on the Podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care.